So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project, look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we'll be talking about a very important topic in pregnancy, asymptomatic bacteria and urinary tract infections. I can already feel my bladder getting full. So today's learning objectives are going to be number one, to define asymptomatic bacteria versus lower urinary tract infections versus pyelonephritis in pregnancy. Secondly, we're going to learn to diagnose each of these in the pregnant woman. And finally, we're going to talk about why treatment for each of these may be different in pregnant patients versus in non-pregnant patients. The caveat here, of course, is that we're only going to be talking about these things in relation to women. We're not talking about men. I don't know if we've ever talked about men on this podcast today. Sometimes, trans men. Yeah, I guess we did do that. So get us started, though. What are some definitions for our conversation today? I always thought that I knew the definitions to asymptomatic bacteria and urinary tract infection. I was like, how did I get to PGY4 without knowing it? But the if you were to ask me before I did research for this podcast the exact definitions, I actually would have gotten them wrong. Let's kind of talk about this really quickly. So asymptomatic bacteria is basically high levels of bacteria in the urine without associated symptoms. It occurs in 2 to 7% of pregnant women and typically occurs early in pregnancy. A urinary tract infection can be defined as lower or upper urinary tract infections. The lower UTI is, is of course, the acute cystitis. This is basically an infection of the bladder with symptoms of dysuria, urinary frequency, and urgency, along with high levels of bacteria in the urine, and this occurs in 1% to 2% of pregnant women. Upper UTIs are, are pyelonephritis, and this is where you do have, again, high levels of bacteria in the urine. However, you may have symptoms of simple cystitis, but you definitely have systemic symptoms, and these would be things like fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, flank pain, um, as well as CVA tenderness on exam. 
This is much less common and occurs in 0.5 to 2% of pregnant women and usually in the second to third trimester. So Nick, I mean, we're talking about UTI and asymptomatic bacteria, which I feel like is a very common thing that we see in OBGYN. So why are we highlighting it? I mean, why do we care? I mean, there really is a big burden of this disease, both for pregnant and non-pregnant women. Now, in non-pregnant women, asymptomatic bacteria can be very prevalent. Over 20% of patients greater than 80 years old can have ASB. Multiple studies have shown that treatment of asymptomatic bacteria, though, in the general non-pregnant population doesn't reduce the frequency of symptomatic infection or prevent adverse outcomes. So, you know, even though it's quite prevalent, we care because... We need to know about the public health ramifications of treatment versus non-treatment of these. Actually, antibiotic stewardship is a huge topic with relation to this because if you get a culture in an asymptomatic patient that grows something, do you treat it or do you not treat it? Um, There are adverse effects of antibiotics and improper use of antibiotics can drive up resistance. So we want to be careful with these things. Pregnant women, on the other hand, are a different story, though. 20 to 35% of pregnant women with asymptomatic bacteria will ultimately develop symptomatic urinary tract infections, including pyelonephritis, and the risk is reduced by 70 to 80% if this is treated. So again, in non-pregnant women, though asymptomatic bacteria can also be quite common, we don't treat that, whereas in pregnant women, we definitely do want to treat it to reduce the risk of morbidity. Faye, let's talk about diagnosis. What do we do to establish that we need to treat these? Yeah, so before we actually talk about um, how we diagnose ASB or UTI, we should talk a little bit about what are the organisms that we tend to find. And the most common organisms, as you probably expect, are E. coli. That's about 70% of all ASB and UTI. Klebsiella is another big one, Enterobacter, and also gram-positive organisms like GBS make up about 10% of ASB and UTI in pregnant women. So let's first step back and talk about the diagnosis of asymptomatic bacteria. So this is defined as finding high-level bacterial growth on urine culture without symptoms consistent with a UTI. And the recommendation per the Infectious Disease Society of America, or IDSA, is to screen all pregnant women for asymptomatic bacteria at least once in early pregnancy, usually between 12 to 16 weeks. The diagnostic criteria is the isolation of a single same bacterial strain that is greater than or equal to 10 to the 5th colony-forming units per mil in two consecutive voided urine samples, Or if you want to get a catheterized sample, then it is one bacterial specimen that is isolated in greater than 10 to the 2 colony-forming units per mil. Faye, if you'd asked me a test question about that today, I definitely would not have gotten that right. You really need two voided samples. Yes, um, to actually diagnose ASV. For acute cystitis, this is actually diagnosed based on symptoms as well as pyuria seen on urine analysis. So the symptoms that we talked about above, like dysuria, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, are very common with UTI, um, with acute cystitis, um, and also seeing um, leukesterase or nitrites or white cells on your urinalysis can usually give you the diagnosis. Now, the diagnosis should be confirmed with a urine culture um, with the criteria that we talked about for ASB, but with typical symptoms and 
Pyuria, you can actually start treating uh, these women without the culture coming back because sometimes it's very, very uncomfortable to go several days without being treated. And also we know that untreated cystitis in pregnant women can put them at risk for pyelonephritis. So what about pylo, Nick? How do you diagnose that? So pylo can have pretty much everything we've just talked about, that dysuria, pyuria on the urinalysis, everything we've talked about, though dysuria doesn't always have to be present. Really, the common symptoms that are going to be here are fevers, chills, flank pain um, with costovertebral angle or CVA tenderness on the affected side, and nausea and vomiting. Importantly, pregnant women with pyelonephritis can become very, very sick. As many as 20% of pregnant women with pyelonephritis develop complications like septic shock or complications of that, even like acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. One study of over 32,000 pregnant women in the general obstetric population with pyelonephritis demonstrated complications such as 23% of these patients had anemia, 17% had bacteremia, 7% developed a respiratory insufficiency, and 2% had renal dysfunction. So again, patients can get really, really sick and really, really fast with pyelonephritis. Diagnostic evaluation for pyelonephritis can include, obviously, urinalysis with urine culture. Additionally, a complete blood count showing leukocytosis and anemia can be important. Blood cultures and lactic acid, if patients present with sepsis, and stay tuned, we'll have a future episode coming out about sepsis later on. And it's uh, Nick's favorite thing. <laughs> um, and imaging is not a routine part of the workup for pyelonephritis, but in patients who are severely ill or have symptoms of renal colic, have diabetes, prior urologic surgery, or have other risk factors such as immunosuppression, they're septic, um, or have repeated pyelonephritis, imaging may be useful in identifying other complicating factors such as an infected stone or a renal abscess. CT scan can also be considered, um, but ultrasound is the preferred initial test to decrease radiation exposure. All right, so Faye, I think we've gone through all of the iterations of infection of the urinary tract. So let's talk about treatment now. Yeah, so we'll go in the same order. We'll talk about ASB, then lower UTI, then pylo. So in terms of asymptomatic bacteria, the basic principle is to treat with antibiotics that are tailored to culture results and follow-up cultures to confirm sterilization of the urine. The reason we treat, again, is because asymptomatic bacteria is not only associated with things like pyelonephritis, but it is also associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes like preterm birth and low birth weight infants. Um, and actually, antibiotic treatment is associated with a reduced risk of pylo and improved pregnancy outcomes. So we normally treat with um, a few antibiotics, and these are usually broken down into three things, beta-lactams, nitrofurantoin or macrobid, and phosphomycin. In terms of how long to treat, most governing bodies will tell you a short course is usually effective. And what a short course means is that the optimal duration has not really yet been found out, so that's uncertain. But we do know that a short course is usually more effective than a single-dose regimen for most of these antibiotics. The only exception is phosphomycin, where a single dose can successfully treat bacteria. The follow-up of these women, up to 30% will fail to clear asymptomatic bacteria after a short course of therapy. So it is recommended that you do a repeat culture about a week after the woman finishes her antibiotics. What happens if that 
culture comes back positive. Well, there isn't a lot of data about whether we should repeat another culture um, or also whether or not we should treat that repeated culture. Though right now, it is our practice to treat that repeated culture if it's positive. In terms of acute cystitis, treatment, again, we talked about like before is empiric because it's hard to make someone wait until the cultures are back and also you're putting them at risk of pylo by not treating them for so long. The same treatment options um, are there as for asymptomatic bacteria, your beta-lactams, your nitrofurantoin, your phosphomycin. Treatment time is again uncertain, but usually we recommend treating between a three to seven day course, um, as long as there are no symptoms or signs of pylo. And again, with phosphomycin, you can give that single dose. The follow-up is just like asymptomatic bacteria. And then if a woman has two or more episodes of recurrent cystitis, it is reasonable to start some kind of prophylaxis. And you can choose either cephalexin 250 to 500 milligrams at night or nitrofurantoin 50 to 100 milligrams at night, depending on the susceptibility of the organisms on previous cultures. What about pylo, Nick? How do you treat that? Pyelonephritis is a little different in pregnant patients than non-pregnant patients. This is considered a complicated pyelonephritis, so pregnant people actually need to be admitted because they're, again, way more likely to get sick compared to non-pregnant people dealing with pyelonephritis. Parenteral antibiotics should be administered initially and subsequently converted to oral antibiotics when the woman's been afebrile for 24 to 48 hours. Empirically, you should start broad with beta-lactams. Something like ceftriaxone is a good initial choice. If a patient has suspected ESBL or a history of ESBL, that is extended spectrum beta-lactamase resistant bacteria, you can consider a carbapenem style antibiotic, something like miropenem or ertapenem um, to treat those types of pyelonephritis. Fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides should be avoided in pregnancy owing to teratogenicity associated with both of these classes of antibiotics. Oral antibiotics ultimately should be, again, beta-lactams, something like we talked about earlier, cephalexin or cefuroxime. Um, in the second trimester, though, you could consider something like trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim. Um, you shouldn't use nitrofurantoin or phosphomycin, though, in the treatment of pyelonephritis because these don't achieve adequate levels in the kidney to treat infection. And you need something that's going to be systemic, not something that concentrates in the bladder. After pyelonephritis, you really should consider preventive therapy for the duration of pregnancy because recurrent pylo is unfortunately pretty common. Six to eight percent of women who have pylo will recur. And so you should, again, as we talked about with recurrent acute cystitis, consider moving forward with additional antibiotic therapy. Some practices may actually even consider using prophylaxis all the way out to six weeks postpartum, um, though the data is more limited on this. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our topic on ASB and UTI. Why don't we summarize? Absolutely. So we started out talking about the definitions for each of these different types of infections. Again, ASB is high levels of bacteria in the urine without any associated symptoms. UTIs can be broken down into lower urinary tract infections, which are cystitis, an infection of the bladder, um, and upper UTIs, which are acute pyelonephritis. The reason we care is that there is some difference in non-pregnant versus pregnant women in terms of asymptomatic bacteria. In non-pregnant women, 
treatment of asymptomatic bacteria has not been shown to reduce the amount of symptomatic urinary tract infection, and also it has not been shown to prevent adverse outcomes. In pregnant women, however, as many as 20 to 35% who have asymptomatic bacteria will develop symptomatic UTIs and even pylo, and by treating them, you are reducing that risk by 70 to 80%. In terms of the microbiology of urinary tract infections, the most common organisms are gram-negative rods. E. coli is going to account for about 70% of urinary tract infections. Other common organisms can include Klebsiella species, Enterobacter, and gram-positive organisms like Group E strep. Asymptomatic bacteriuria in terms of a diagnosis, again, requires high-level bacterial growth on a urine culture without symptoms and actually requires two voided specimens containing the same bacterial strain of greater than or equal 10 to the fifth colony forming units or a single calf specimen with one species greater than 10 to the second colony forming units noted. Acute cystitis is going to require something that is symptomatic. So again, dysuria, suprapubic pain, and pyuria seen on a urinalysis. This should ultimately be confirmed with urine culture, but you don't need to wait on that. You can go ahead and start treatment. Pylo is basically adding on top of your symptomatic UTI. And so pylo is where you actually have all of the above, though you may or may not have dysuria, with additional systematic symptoms, including fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, flank pain, or CVA tenderness on exam. You should know that pregnant women can become very sick, and many women can become septic or develop ARDS. Diagnostic evaluation should include a urine culture, urinalysis, CBC. You could probably get blood cultures and lactic as well if the patient is septic. And while imaging is not routine, you should consider it in high-risk populations. Finally, we talked about treatment for each of these entities. With ASB, we should treat with antibiotics tailored to culture results and follow-up cultures to confirm sterilization of the urine, again, to prevent these adverse outcomes associated with development of pyelonephritis. We generally treat with beta-lactams, nitrofurantoin, or phosphomycin, again, in order to be effective to eliminate the bacterial offender. The treatment is the same with acute cystitis. Again, beta-lactams, nitrofurantoin, or phosphomycin. And you also follow up just like asymptomatic bacteria to see if the woman has cleared the uh, organism from their urine. If a woman has two or more episodes of recurrent cystitis, then it is reasonable to start them on some kind of prophylaxis. Finally, with pyelonephritis, these patients need to be admitted to the hospital because they are likely to get really sick. This is a complicated UTI with pyelonephritis, so you should start with parenteral antibiotics and convert to oral antibiotics only after the patient is afebrile for 24 to 48 hours. Generally, we start with broad-spectrum beta-lactams, or if you suspect ESBL, you can consider carbapenem, and then switch to oral antibiotics that, again, are beta-lactams, or in the second trimester, you can consider Bactrim. You can consider preventive therapy for the duration of the pregnancy because recurrent pilot is common, and you can even consider about prophylaxis for six weeks postpartum. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast on ASB and UTI. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to our podcast, go ahead and go onto our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. We'll give you a shout out on the show or some swag in return. 
We have notes on this episode as well as every single one of our other episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a correction for this show or any other show or just want to ask us a question, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 